Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host. My name is Katie Morton. If you don't know who I am, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've been creating mental health content online for 10 years now, yet I have not aged a day. I'm just kidding. I have definitely aged. Um, How are you doing? Just checking in. If you didn't know, my new book, Traumatized, is out. Oh, I almost kind of match it a little bit. If you're just listening, I'm wearing an orange top, and my book is kind of like yellowy orange. I don't quite match. I actually almost clash. Uh, But it's available now. I would love to get your feedback. I hope that it's a helpful tool to assist any of you who have been traumatized, wonder if you have been traumatized or know someone who who has. I hope that there's a lot of helpful tips and tools and techniques in there that you can utilize to make your life better. I'm really proud of it and I hope that you love it. And I was trying to think if there's something else. Today we have eight questions. If you are new and you're like, where do you get these questions from? I would like to ask a question. We'll just hop on over to my YouTube channel that is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That is the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. And you can hop over there. And in the community tab on that channel, every Sunday mornings, I post asking you for your questions. And I pick the ones with the most thumbs up. So if there's a question that's super close to what you want to ask, you can you know give it a thumbs up. And then if there's a little add-on, if you're like, So I like that question, but also what about this? You can put that below and I will answer that as well. And that's how we get these done. And I try to do, you know, I try to get through as many as I can. The last couple of questions are usually just randoms. In this case, since there's only eight, because in question two, we had like a zillion follow-up questions, but question eight is just a random pick one. So I try to do that so that every person has an opportunity to get their questions answered. Without further ado, let's just jump into question number one. And this question says, hi, Katie, how much of our childhood is normal to remember? Hmm. I remember some things, but not a ton. My family life was fine growing up. I had loving parents, but I experienced bullying at school and social isolation because of that. I'm wondering if me not remembering stuff is because of the trauma of bullying. My guess would be yes. Or if it is just normal not to remember everything from childhood. I feel like most of my memories are tied to pictures that I've seen and stories that I've been told rather than the actual memory. That's actually really important to to acknowledge and to understand. That's a question I usually ask people too. I even forgot that I played piano until I was in third grade, so old enough to remember, until I saw a video of it as an adult. I have no memory of it and I can't play piano now. It was really weirded out when I saw the video, but couldn't remember that and wondered what other memory gaps I have. I've also experienced um, my memories in third person, ooh, dissociation, like I'm looking on them and I'm wondering if that is normal too. I'm 22, by the way. Okay, so I really love this question and first I just want to kind of clear the air about memories. So I did a ton of research for my book. There's an, an entire chapter just about trauma memories. I think it's chapter eight or nine. Um, but anyways, it's, it's very normal for us to not remember every detail of every year of our life. Frankly, that's too much like work, what they call working memory, meaning we can like easily recall it. It's too much to keep going and still make new memories and like focus on what we need to during our day, right? But the difference is that when it's just a memory that we haven't recalled in a while, but it's not a like complete uh, trauma, like repressed memory or a dissociative episode, therefore we might not have the memory or we might not have clear recollection of it. The difference is that 
when it's one of those memories that's just like, oh, I haven't thought about that in a while. When someone like scratches the surface, like let's say I go home and I don't really remember much of playing t-ball, but I run into my good friend, Jamie at a local restaurant or pub or something. And she's like, oh my God, the other day I saw this photo of us. And do you remember when Tara teaching us to French braid and like telling me this whole story, right? And I'm just saying that it's actually a true story. My friend Tara taught me how to French braid. So it was steering softball, actually not t-ball, but whatever. Let's say she brings up that memory and I'm like, oh my God, yeah, remember those itchy uniforms? And oh, I got the worst scar. I still have it on my leg from sliding into home plate, right? I know that's not t-ball, but I'm just talking like softball memories. Once somebody scratches the surface of it and tells us a little bit, then we like can color it in more and then they add more and we add more. And it's like the memory is slowly put back together. And the only thing that was keeping us from recalling it was honestly just not putting in the effort to do so. Does that make sense? On the other hand, when it's a trauma memory, oftentimes we don't have that memory because we were, like I said earlier, we were dissociated, meaning we were kind of out of body or out of environment. And we were so removed that we didn't actually form a full memory. Or it's a completely repressed memory. And until we are actually doing the trauma work, it won't reveal itself because it was actually, you know, very resourceful of us and our brain and a way to keep moving forward and survive it was to just stuff it deep within ourselves and forget that it ever existed. And repressed memories can come back in full, but sometimes they don't. And there's no judgment around that. You can trust your repressed memories as long as they weren't like fed to you by a, a you know, a therapist acting in unethical ways. So I just want to clear that up. There is, it is normal to not remember everything, but a little bit of like, again, scratching the surface or someone, you know, adding a little bit of information about it. We're like, oh, we remember everything. Okay. So, well, most of it, you know, now remembering some things, but not a ton. When we have these huge swaths, like when you don't remember that you played piano up until third grade, like there's that whole like blockage. And if we have these chunks of time, like many of my patients who've been traumatized um, will struggle with like, oh, I don't remember, you know, age eight to 12 or something. There'll be like these huge years of our life where we have no memory. And even when someone tells us about it, that's why I love that they mentioned how, you know, they don't know if they really remember them or if it's because they've seen pictures and people have told them stories. Because I always ask my patients like, oh, do you actually remember that happening or someone just told you that it did? Or have you seen some photos or videos proving that it did? Because that's very different. And to even watch a video of ourselves and be like, I don't, like, if, if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I'd be like, that, that's not true. That tells me that the bullying that you sustained was traumatic and therefore you struggled with dissociation because you said that like you watched your your memories in third person. That's a very dissociative type of uh, viewership, meaning like the perspective isn't usually third person, right? When we experience something as ourselves, we see it first person because it's it's us, we're us. Even in dreams, right? You're you. However, if we find ourselves like, a third person watching things happen, almost like we're watching on television or watching, um, you know, other people engage. That to me says that you were most likely dissociated during that time. And that would also explain the lapse in memory and the struggles to recall. And so overall, yes, bullying is trauma. And I know so often we think trauma, I talk about this a lot in my book, and I've talked about this on the podcast and, and on my channel many, many times. We often think of trauma as having to be these huge things like, oh, I went to war, I was in this big car accident, or I was abused like horribly for years by a parent. No, 
trauma can be bullying that goes on, right? That's scary. Bullies can be terrifying and terrible, and it can also make school really hard for us. It's, 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 It's traumatizing on many levels. But trauma can also be just things that we don't have the ability to cope with, like our parents getting divorced or having to move or changing jobs, losing a job, getting a job, you know, all of these things can add up to us developing PTSD. Therefore, we have been traumatized. And really, in this case, I think the bullying was traumatic for you. You struggle with dissociation and that's why you have those uh, memory gaps. And I don't like if it's normal or not, because it is normal for someone who's been traumatized. Yes. But for those of us who haven't, that's not that's not normal memory recall. Now, there was a comment on this and it said, how do you differentiate between not remembering much from childhood because you don't have a good memory or because something traumatic happened? And I kind of answered that at the beginning. The difference is that if someone gives you just a little bit of information about it, you can run with it. And you're like, oh, because the memory's there. But when it's a trauma memory, it's like those memories just don't exist. And even if you look at photos or videos of yourself, you're like, I have no recollection, right? Um, Or it can be that third person because you're dissociated. Then the person says, when talking to my younger sister, I sometimes feel like she just remembers way more than I do. It's possible that she wasn't traumatized. And then she brings up something we experienced together. For example, I just can't remember and her talking in detail about it doesn't bring back the memories as well. There's your indicator. My upbringing itself was not abusive, but my mother was chronically depressed and away from us twice for like six weeks each because she was being treated in a clinic. Could that have been stressful enough for a child to not form a lot of memories? Yes. Now here's the thing. Oh, and I'll just finish this. Says, I feel like I don't remember much of my life until the age of seven or eight, maybe, and I'm not sure why. Here's the thing about siblings, and I, I also address this in my book, is that each person, every person in the world, has a different level of resilience, meaning our ability to weather life's storms and be okay. Resilience is full of things like support systems and coping skills and all the good stuff, like the self-care stuff that we talk about and how important that is, right? Understanding negative self-talk and positive self-talk and working to overcome it. That builds up our resilience so that when bad things happen, like our mom being super depressed and having to be in a clinic, which is very hard for a child, right? That's one of your primary caregivers. And you're like, I don't know what's wrong with them. Often when we're children, we don't understand. We assume that we did something to upset them. And that can be really hard to, to manage. And if no one tells us different, we believe that, which is horrible. All of that to say that I would assume your level of resilience just was not as much as your sister's because unfortunately we're born with just a certain amount. We can improve it and we can work to increase our resilience. But when we're talking about children, we often don't know. And if no one's getting us into therapy or asking us how we feel and increasing our emotional intelligence, we just deal with it the best we can with what we've got. And your sister, for instance, like I talk about this um, on a, I talked about it on a previous podcast, like how my sister-in-law is super resilient because she's just naturally, she naturally puts together great support systems and is great at reaching out and speaks up right away. So she doesn't like wait to tell someone something's wrong. She has like an amazing friend group and the people that she connects with and they know her in a real way. Anyway, so she's really great at that. And so naturally her resilience is higher than maybe somebody else, right? And so I would assume your sister is similar to that and you didn't have as much resilience. And therefore, the trauma of your mom being chronically depressed and being in clinics and being gone, right, being treated was overwhelming to your system and why you don't remember the things that your sister does. Also, 
I do want to put in there that some siblings will remember things differently because of their age difference. Like my brother is almost four years older than me. And so there's certain things that he will remember and I will remember other parts of that. And I'll be like, oh, it's because I didn't understand. Like, because I was so much younger, that didn't make sense to me. But he had the language to put to it and therefore remembers it as that thing. Does that make sense? It'd be like, if I don't understand, I don't know what like I like for instance let's say we were out with our parents and my brother's like yeah I remember you know Uncle John getting really drunk and as a kid if I was that much younger I wouldn't know what drunk was and I wouldn't even know what that means and I would just think yeah I remember him being weird right I wouldn't have that memory in the same way I know that's a weird example but I just want you to know that sometimes age can play a role as well when it comes to properly identifying memories and actually placing the real words to them so Overall, I hope that gives you a better understanding of memories and trauma memories. When we are in a, a trauma, a state of trauma, what that really means is our stress response is ignited. Our stress response is our fight flight response. And when that happens, our amygdala and our limbic system in our brain sounds the alarm to, to put us into survival mode, which takes offline our prefrontal cortex, which is like the decision maker, the organizer of our brain. And in doing that, it makes it, you know, it's all survival. It makes it hard for us to be thoughtful and plan what we want to do. We can be really, you know, easily agitated, irritated, and make bad decisions potentially. And if it gets to be too overwhelming, right, we can go into freeze, which is where they believe PTSD is created, and we can dissociate. That can be part of freeze also. We can just pull out. I mean, in our brain pulls a ripcord. It's like, this is too much. I can't process. Wah! And that can all affect our ability to form memory. And so I just want you to know that when we are in that state, we can struggle. And that's probably, you know, why some chunks of time in our life are just hard to recall because we were being traumatized. We were in our stress response. We went into freeze and can't remember because freeze is really common in children and fawning. Fawning happens a lot too. I had a video that went out about that. Um, if you want to watch, you can go over my channel and learn more. But anyways, I hope that gives you just an idea of trauma memories and why they can be so hard to recall. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi there. Are suicidal thoughts dangerous when they aren't exactly in the near future or planned? Hmm, good question. I personally had this thought that once I start university, I won't be able to handle the extra fears and I can barely, as I can barely handle my current situation, even though I don't have a job or public school and will probably commit suicide. In parentheses, I've been homeschooled for two years and had an attempt right when school started back um, because I couldn't handle being around people anymore. Any thoughts or ideas as to bring this up to my therapist? She's an amazing, th amazing therapist, so I'm sure she'll understand, but I don't know how to explain it without seeming like a crisis situation. And FYI, I don't really struggle with any other suicidal thoughts or self-harm at the moment. So it's really just that one thought. This is a good question. Suicidal thoughts in and of themselves are not dangerous. And I know that people are like, what? How could you say that as a therapist? Suicidal thoughts are not actions. They're just thoughts. We have all sorts of thoughts every day. And some sure could lead to dangerous things like suicidal thoughts or homicidal thoughts, like I want to harm that person. That could be dangerous in the future. But in and of itself, it's not. And so when it comes to my patients, first of all, I think just telling your therapist, I've always thought this. I don't have any active plans. I, I don't 
you know, have the means to do it. I'm not like putting this together, but I just don't like that this hangs around. That's a f- easy, fine conversation to have with a therapist. They're not going to put you in the hospital because you don't have the means, you don't have a plan. You know, you just like always thought that this is how it would turn out. I've had so many patients talk about that. Like I never thought I'd make it to insert certain age or certain life milestone or whatever. And the reason that it's important to talk to your therapist about this is because I would want to know where this thought comes from or where this belief comes from when we when it started what was going on in our lives because my hypothesis would be that there's something that triggered this and and I want to know what it is and I want to dig into it so we can learn more about it so we can work to heal it and that's really it so I I would say it to your therapist just the way you say it to me that you know it's not planned it's not in the near future I just never thought that I would make it this far and I've always thought that you know, I can't handle it. And I've assumed that because what what those really are is like false beliefs about ourselves and our situation. And so we have to challenge those using bridge statements and uh, just acknowledging those thoughts before we allow them to like live rent free in our brain. There's a lot of work to be done there. So I think that will be really helpful for your therapist to know. And you can create like a, a safety plan so that we don't have another attempt because I know those can be traumatizing too. And, you know, kind of like snowballs the whole suicidal thoughts and depression thing and so and self is self-harm all that stuff so yeah let your therapist know make sure you let them know that there's no plans and it's not going to happen anytime soon but you just want to talk about it and then you should be good um because i don't really think they're dangerous unless they go unspoken and un untreated meaning like you don't figure them out or get curious and, and try to recognize where they're coming from Now, there was a comment on this and says, as an add-on, what's usually the plan when someone doesn't want to actively commit suicide? Or what will the therapist usually do? We'll talk talk about it, try to figure out what the trigger was. We'll put together a safety plan with you so that you have some tools and resources that you can reach out to or you can do in the moment to help you better manage those urges. Um... Well, it potentially, depending on how serious, I might check in with you in between sessions. So like if I only see you once a week, I might want to do a check-in every other day just to make sure you're okay. And then with the, within that plan, we would have people that you're okay with me reaching out to if I don't hear back from you. So let's say I go to do a check-in and you don't pick up and you don't get back to me within a, whatever agreed upon amount of time, then I can call your roommate or your sister or your parent or whoever we decide and then they can check in on you and get back to me so yeah that that's really what we do if there is a plan and there are the means and the threat is imminent meaning you know you're doing it like tomorrow or soon then we would have to pretend consider putting you in the hospital for your own safety and we don't i don't i don't never want to do that i've actually never had to knock on wood um, I had to do a ton of check-ins and tons of safety plans, but I've never had to put someone in the hospital. And I prefer not to because it, it in and of itself can be traumatizing. But it's more about us gathering information. They're going to ask you a lot about like, do you have a plan? Do you have the means? Where this is coming from? Um, and then we just work to figure out what the best treatment is. Is that challenging the negative thoughts? Probably. Is that maybe medication? Possibly. And yeah, working from there. And then someone had a comment on top of this that as a follow-up, I often have thoughts that I just want to wake up when I'm 30 already. Oh, and already married and have started a family. I'm 22, but I've been saying that for two years. And I don't necessarily want to die, but I don't want to deal with the decisions right now. So I don't really want to be here right now. 
but I do want to be alive later. Would that still be considered suicidal thoughts, even though I don't have plans for it? I do have intrusive thoughts every now and again, when let's say I'm, I'm drinking, or I'm drinking, I'm sorry guys, it says I'm driving, and I think, what if I just turn my car when I get to the bend in the road? That's OCD, that's more pure OCD. Are those suicidal thoughts or do the thoughts have to have an imminent intent behind them? Those are not suicidal thoughts. Those are more a part of your OCD. Unfortunately, a lot of us with OCD can have thoughts like that that are violent or sexual in nature. Why they're that way, I don't know. Maybe because it, those are things we can worry about, right? Those, th- those are things that can be dangerous and therefore it focuses our brain on it like really intently. Um, but what you're talking about really doesn't, to me, sound like suicidal thoughts. It sounds more, I don't know, kind of maybe anxiety driven, maybe a little bit of depression or, I mean, part of me just feels like it's kind of an extension of your OCD because a lot of people don't want to make the decisions. Like you're saying, you don't have to deal with decisions right now. And decisions come with uh, planning, preparation, and potential worry, which is you know, feeding into our anxiety. So all in all, I really do not think that those are suicidal thoughts. I think those are more your intrusive thoughts that are related to your OCD. And part of that comes from like the anxiety that that comes along with the OCD. Now there was another uh, comment. So remember there was a ton of comments on this. So another question said, also can grief and trauma make you do things you wouldn't normally do? 100%. I have no memory of this, but after my cousin died, I woke up in the middle of the night, walked across the city and tried to commit suicide. You don't remember. I wonder what happened. I've never seriously considered killing myself. It was more a spur of the moment. I don't know if subconsciously I always wanted to do it or just the trauma of it all decided it for me. I've, I've never heard of that happening, but my hypothesis would be that you were so stricken with grief and the trauma of losing your cousin that you maybe dissociated while you were doing that. And I mean, I would t- obviously tell your therapist about it and talk about it, which I, I'm hopeful and pretty sure that you've done. But I, I don't think even it's a subconscious thing necessarily. It could just be the intense state of overwhelm. I know this sounds really wild, but sometimes when we're just so overwhelmed and our system is just maxed out, we can act in ways that are not us and it's not what we would really want and it's not what we intend to do. It's just something that happens. I mean, I had a patient who was super, super guilt uh, stricken back in the day. And she, I, she, I thought I thought she had been drunk, but she had called me like a zillion times, left all these really wild and weird sounding messages. So I called her in the morning, very concerned. And she had like no memory of it and was like, I'm fine. I just had a rough night. Um, and I think it was just because her system was so overwhelmed because a lot of the messages didn't even make sense. And she hadn't been, you know, getting like drugs or alcohol or anything like that. So I think grief, trauma, I think overwhelm to our nervous system can make us do some strange things. And I would take the time to talk this through with your therapist and be curious about it just because we don't know why it happened. We never really had plans to do this. We didn't think about it. Like you said, you never seriously considered it. So where did it come from? I might spend some time digging in just to be sure that we're safe and just to be sure there's nothing there because, you know, it is a potentially very dangerous situation. Now, another question says, an add-on question is, hi, Katie, is it normal to have suicidal thoughts several times a week, but not really want to die? Yes, very normal. Um, 
and being afraid of doing anything new, like applying for a job or making a new friend for fear of being rejected and feel like it would be all over and having fear that the suicidal thoughts will win in the future. This sounds potentially like the rejection sensitive dysphoria. I have a video about RSD that went up on my channel month, like a month or two ago. Just look up Katie Morton rejection sensitive dysphoria. I wonder if that might be what's happening here. But also I want you to know that a lot of people have suicidal thoughts, thoughts several times a week, but they don't have any plans to do anything and they're kind of passive. So my question to you is, are these passive or active? Meaning, is it just like all oh, these thoughts like, I had a man, I wish I wasn't here. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we just go about our day. Or is it more planned, more thoughtful, more like step-by-step? Step? Are we making, are we taking steps to move ourselves toward trying to take our own life? Those are the questions I have. Because while a lot of people have these kind of passive suicidal thoughts or uh, suicidal ideations, as we can call them, when they move into the more active role. That's when as a therapist, I get worried and want to check in more. And so I think that that's, you know, I just want you to, to consider it and think about it. Are we active or passive? Okay. Now, another follow-up, like I said, there were tons, says, what exactly counts as a suicide plan? Do you need exact details for it to count? Or does it just need to be the method and general steps needed to accomplish it? Yeah, just the method and general steps. That's all that we, we really, as a therapist, that's all I really ask. I'm not going to ask for explicit details. Some people have it. Some people don't. Most of my patients just, you know, know the method and the general steps they would take. And that's, that would be considered the plan. That's a great question though. Okay. Next question says, my question is if someone plans way in the future, it could be addressed as active suicidality, even though it's not an imminent risk. Oh, could it be? Even though it's not an imminent risk right now. Yes. Um, because you want to treat something that has a deadline that's like actually specific, we want to dig in and figure out where that's coming from and why that deadline and, and try to spark hope. That's always what I feel like with my depressed and suicidal patients. I'm just like in the dark with a, a bad lighter that won't spark, trying to get it to go, spinning that wheel, hoping for the, and then we get the spark. Um, so yeah, I don't think that I mean, it is, it needs to be addressed and I would call it active because there's a plan and like a timeline, even though it's, it's out in the future, that doesn't actually really matter in my mind. And the person goes on to say, I don't feel so much the way as I did two years ago. However, I, I haven't mentioned anything to my therapist about what I was planning to do because I like the idea of, of having suicide as a choice. Okay. We can dig into that a little then is it normal to feel that way? I feel as if I say something, it will become a big deal. And my only thing, the only thing I can control will be taken away from me. And that's upsetting. And finally, if a person had, um, had since aborted suicide, could their chances for this person to die from suicide increase? I hope this all makes sense. Thanks for everything you do for us. Of course, of course, I'm so happy to help. So maybe if a person hasn't done it then are, are there, does it increase? Yeah. The, the more attempts, the more, the more high the chances that we will, we will take our own life. That's just through, you know, I mean, it kind of sounds obvious, but in case you didn't know, that's, that is the truth. But to answer the top part of this question, I think this is really important is, um, having the, like when we like to have the idea of suicide as a choice, I've heard from so many of you that you just like having that as a possibility, like, Mm, if stuff gets that bad, I've got a way out. That can feel very powerful. And the reason that we do that is actually more of a, a false sense of control and feeling that like, well, I can always just, just get out of here, right? We can feel like that's an out. 
instead of feeling trapped, instead of feeling hopeless and helpless, it gives us some empowerment. But I'm here to tell you that that empowerment isn't actually empowerment. It's uh, it's kind of that false sense of security or safety or whatever that we we give to ourselves, but it's not real. A real way to give yourself some some power, some control, some hope, so you don't feel hopeless and helpless, is to have resources to reach out to, people to talk to, things to do, other supports like therapy, group therapy, stuff like that. That actually gives you more control over your behaviors because we're working on our thoughts and our feelings about those thoughts and therefore able to change our actions. And so I, I'd have to push back on this, but it is very common. And for a lot of my patients, they say that it's like to have whatever the means are because then they know it's there and then they feel like they have a way out. And we, we work on that for months and months and I usually have them try to leave it at the office with me. And then with their permission, we either get rid of them or we, uh, you know, I give them back. I usually, I don't think I've actually ever given them back, you guys. Not because I wouldn't have, but because they decided they just wanted me to keep it. I've had patients not want to destroy it, not to throw it out or anything, but they've wanted me to like hold on to it. And I've done that forever and ever. I had someone's self-harm tools in my file cabinet, just in this little lockbox. And they never, never asked for them back, never wanted me to destroy them, but they just sat there. And then when we like parted ways because she was moving on, I asked if she wanted them and she said no. So anyway, all that to say that it's very normal to want that way out, but I'm here to tell you that it, you know, there are better ways to get that kind of empowerment and control back. Oh, and if you're watching and you're wondering why my chest is red in different parts, it's because I have a puppy and she likes to be like on top of me and her claws are very sharp. And don't worry, I've been trying to file them down one at a time so that I don't become clawed to death. <laughs> okay, now let's move into um, the five. Oh no, there's two more. Another question on this says, I've had the same thought for ages about starting university, except now I move I move in a couple of weeks and the idea of suicide simultaneously terrifies and comforts me. I should have support set up. Yes, you should. Specialist mentor for the whole time and a student buddy for the first few weeks when I get there, but I don't have anything now, right? So we got to get there. It doesn't help that I know several people close to me who have made attempts, including when starting university. So, you know, so I know how they did it. How can I stop this thought and get into my head that uni will be okay? Honestly, the best way to stop those thoughts because they can just like build on one another, right? It's like one happens. Sorry, I've got pod nose here. My nose itches. One happens and we like spiral in and they just like pick up steam, right? And there's like, it breeds more thoughts and more thoughts is to recognize them, write them down, just like your top five. And then I want you to challenge those thoughts with some bridge statements. Now, if you don't know what bridge statements are, bridge statements are really just like not negative, but not positive thoughts. We don't want to do toxic positivity. It's not like, oh, fake it till you make it, you know, and that can help for a little bit, but it's not sustainable. It doesn't actually, we find it doesn't actually change behavior. So instead of being like, I'm great, uni's going to be amazing. It's going to be okay. Instead of just all trying to say that over and over, how about instead we say, you know, I'm open to the belief that, that maybe university won't be as bad as I think, or, you know, I'm hopeful for the future that I will feel better soon. Those are all, I know you're like, Katie, those aren't that positive or, oh, I don't know. You can put your own language to it, but we need to build a bridge into a more, at least neutral place because this negativity is just going to spiral you out. And then we're going to have like self-fulfilling prophecy where we shit talk ourselves and are really negative and really focused on suicide 
and then we can't see out of it, right? We'll just spiral. Now, the final question on this says, if a person has attempted suicide in the past and currently struggles with suicidal ideation, are they at greater risk for trying to commit suicide again? Yes. Statistically speaking, the like I said, the more attempts we've had, the more likely we are to try it again. And so um, if any of you out there are struggling, please reach out to a mental health professional. Please reach out to your hotlines, your suicide hotlines, wherever you are. I know in the States, we even have crisis text line. It's 741741. We have the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. I know in the UK, I think it's Samaritans that you call. And I know every place, every country has a suicide prevention hotline. Please call. Please talk to somebody. I know it feels like it's hopeless and helpless, but I'm here to tell you that it can and will get better. Sometimes we just need a little extra support because we can't see out of the fog that that is like suicidal thoughts and plans. It tries to just snuff out all the light. So try to welcome someone into the darkness with you so they can show you back out to where the light is because I promise you it can get better. Okay, let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, Hi, Katie. I, th- I don't think you've ever talked about helicopter parents and the effects that they have on children. What if instead of emotional neglect, you receive so much attention and emotional presence from a parent that you don't learn how to operate on your own? It's a great question. How can one overcome the embarrassment of having such a problem? I always felt loved and so many kids didn't. Due to early traumatic experiences, my mom tried to overcompensate and protect me from the world. I now live on my own about 3,000 kilometers away from home as I've never been taught properly how to take care of myself. It makes the most basic things embarrassingly exhausting. My lifestyle kind of resembles a kid who was left alone at home for the first time. Where should I start? My my self-image also confuses me. I'm a high achiever and have always been somewhat successful and confident career-wise, and yet I feel largely incompetent in other areas of my life. How can I reconcile these two parts? Thanks for all that you do. This is a great question. And the truth about this, it's really interesting because any the, the helicopter parent is just as detrimental to children as an emotionally neglectful parent because that enmeshment and codependency. Now, if you don't know what those two things are, enmeshment is when we have no boundaries, meaning that like we don't have anything private. Our parents like uh, know everything about our life. We don't have any sense of independence. And probably they tell us stuff that they shouldn't tell us about their life. And we're almost like potentially not maybe a parentified child when we're younger, but then even as we get older, they treat us like a friend instead of a a child. And that's really unhealthy. Okay, so there could be that. Then there could be codependency where we take on their emotions. So we feel like if they're upset, I'm upset. And we don't really have any any dividing factor, any boundary line in between us and someone else. It's like we are just we all the time. Does that make sense? And so helicopter parents definitely do that. They definitely smother and are enmeshed with their children. And it, it, again, it's like, it's detrimental to you because you, now you don't know how to take care of yourself because you were never given an opportunity to. And so the question is, um, how can one overcome the embarrassment of having such a problem? To be truthful, my best advice for you is to start start therapy and start talking about it in therapy because therapy is a safe place to talk about the things we're embarrassed to say out loud, right? If we can't imagine telling our friends about it or even being in group therapy and talking about it, right? The one-on-one therapy in like a, a safe environment where you know there's confidentiality, I think that's a great place to start. And there, there are other supports that 
you could potentially get if you needed them. And I only want to mention this because I know some people just need some extra support due to our mental illnesses. Like if we're struggling to get everything we need to get done every day or because of the enmeshment and like lack of boundaries with our parent, kind of their like helicopter style, we don't know how to take care of ourselves. There are people that can help us learn. And these can be anything from, I've heard from many of you have had occupational therapists that help you. I know occupational therapists can do a lot of different things, but many of you told me you have them or having a support worker is what they're called, or sometimes even a social worker can make sure that you have all the resources in your home life to help so that you can keep doing what you need to do and you can, you know, um, get what you need to get done and feel slowly like build mastery in your life, right? Where you feel adequate, you feel like you are confident and you can do these things. And I'm proud of you, first of all, for moving away and over 3000 kilometers away. That's amazing. I'm proud of you. I'm excited. We just need to get you some support. I also encourage you, if there are things you don't know how to do, do what the rest of us do. Look on YouTube. Start Googling some things and looking things up so that you can learn. Um, so I would just, I would start with the things that bother you the most. You said, where should you start? First of all, finding a therapist is going to be key because this, this like emotional abuse that you sustained in a way, it's like, um, I know it seems weird to call it emotional abuse, but that's what it was because you weren't free to be yourself. You weren't independent. You were kind of like coerced, controlled and held down by the like over, it's like they overcompensated and it can be just as dangerous. So seeing a therapist, you can work through that and process through all you've dealt with will be really healing. And then having some steps as we work toward the things that are bothering us the most. Maybe it bothers us the most that we don't really know how to cook Okay, well then part of your therapy homework would be to pick one recipe and to try making it, you know, and to watch on YouTube as someone does it because there's tons of videos where you can just watch someone cook. And can we practice that way? Or is it that you don't know how to properly do your laundry? Okay, well, can we watch? There's a lady on TikTok that talks all about stains and laundry. She's amazing. Maybe we watch her a little bit and we try to do a load. I know these things may for some of us sound really simple, but if we'd never been taught and if we didn't know where to start, how would we start? And so that's what I really use your resources. I think we can build some mastery. We can get better. And I think through that, you'll build your own sense of confidence and self-worth. And most importantly, healthy independence. Okay. And then the final part of this, she asked like, how can I reconcile these two parts? So, okay. My self-image also confuses me. A high achiever I think that that will come with time. I don't believe we can just reconcile the two parts immediately. A lot of us are even just last month in our Patreon live stream, someone asked a question about why they're so clean and organized and planned at work. And then at home, it's like chaos. And it's it's very common. It's because we want to, you know, especially with helicopter parents, we want to make them proud. And there was probably a lot of, F, a lot of effort slash like forcefulness and pushing you to be successful in school and work. And so that stuff, you're like, we got that unlocked because my parent can't come with me to school all the time. And so I was there doing the stuff and like learning and moving through all the projects. And so you were able to achieve in that realm. However, the ways that you weren't allowed to grow and learn and do it on your own was at home and, and things like that. And so that's why you're feeling this huge discrepancy. And I believe that working on it in therapy and trying to figure out, you know, 
also building mastery, but figuring out like the things you say to yourself about trying these new things. I, I think that that will all be really helpful. Re- will reveal a lot about the conversations you have regarding this, um, like within yourself, you know, the conversations we have within ourselves about it. And I think slowly as you heal, those two parts will be reconciled. Does that make sense? I hope so. And I realize I miscounted our questions and we only have seven today. So sorry, but like I said, number two was a long one. Let's move on to question number four. And that says, hi, Katie, I've recently started seeing a trauma therapist. Yay. I like her, but I haven't really opened up and, and about anything since I am scared that she won't believe me and I'll shut down like I usually do in session. How do I overcome my fear of not being believed by my therapist? My best advice is to start small. It's easy to it's easy to shut down, especially if we've been traumatized. It's like our go-to. We're like, freeze state, I got this on lock. Boom, we just shut it down, powering down, right? We can do that so quickly and with ease. What's hard is vulnerability, courage, speaking up about things, right? Because the shame, guilt, and embarrassment we feel can just push us deep, deep down. And so I would encourage you to spend some time at home writing some of the layers like I talked about this in, uh, in past podcast, but like the layers of the onion that we may have of like what we're okay sharing and what we're not okay sharing. And then just start working your way so that we can have these experiences with our therapist where we've told them certain little things that maybe aren't crazy for us to tell somebody, but they're more than we would normally share just a little bit. And it was okay. So we're like proving it's safe, slowly but surely, working our way. And you might find that after a couple of those, you're like, oh, I don't really, it's, I'm not that bothered anymore because the exposure worked. Or you might have to slowly tippy toe all the way in. And that's okay too. No judgment. I think it's just, it's not really about like, got to overcome the fear before we share everything. It's more like little by little, let's prove to ourselves that it's really not that scary. And it could even help also as another potential tool is to journal about the ways that it is okay. What's What are the facts that we have that prove that we that our therapist will believe us? Or, you know, you could even go in the reverse and say like, do we have any proof that they're not going to believe us? Hmm. Just spend some time thinking about that because that can really help. Then we can see sometimes logically we're like, there isn't really any reason for this, or I don't have any facts. This is just me being stressed and worried, right? And shutting down because of my shame, embarrassment, and guilt, maybe. There was a comment on this that said, yes. Also, sometimes I question my memory. Is what I remember real? I wonder why talking about some, um, I wonder why talking about something I'm not really sure about. If I don't know Huh. If I don't know what to believe, the therapist won't believe me. Gotcha. I see what you mean. You're, you're saying that like, if you're not really sure, then if you don't know what to believe, then will the therapist believe you? The cool thing about a trauma therapist and someone who's trauma informed is that they understand how tricky and difficult these memories are. And yes, they're going to believe you. They're just going to guide you slowly by asking more thoughtful questions so that you can, whatever memory there is to be revealed can be revealed little by little at a pace that feels okay for you. Because as we all know, trauma work is really fucking hard and we can want to shut down and we can struggle to focus and all of that stuff. And so little by little, they will help you reveal it at the pace you can without being re-traumatized. And why, you know, again, why wouldn't they believe you? It's very, very common for people with trauma to, to struggle with their memory and to question it. And that's why it's just really important that we find a trauma specialist or a therapist that's just trauma-informed, meaning they really get trauma work, okay? 
Another question says, as an add-on, how do you learn to trust yourself? I know that there have been some traumatic events in the past, but I try to deny it most of the time. My thoughts are spiraling and images of sexual abuse are popping up. How can I find out if these images and sensations are real memories or flashbacks or just my imagination? It often feels like I'm making it all up to have an excuse for my behavior. I struggle with bulimia and anorexia and self-harm, and I've been in therapy for two years now, but my eating disorder is just getting worse and worse. Okay, so I think the trust in yourself again, and I know these answers suck and I'm sorry, I wish there was a better one, but the trust in yourself will grow as we speak about the trauma, feel supported and validated and empowered by our therapist or people around us, right? Friends, family, group therapy, any of that stuff. As we get that positive reinforcement of that support that I'm so sorry this happened and, and yes, that's really hard and, and the just the validation of what we went through, we will slowly come out of that shame, embarrassment and guilt kind of cycle or pit of despair that the trauma puts us in. It will let us out so that we can learn to trust and love ourselves again. And it takes time. Again, I know these answers suck, but that's the real truth. I mean, sure, I could try to put together some like fake pop psychology answer like, oh, you know, you should just smile about it or go take a shower. It'll You'll be trusting yourself then, but that's just not the truth. It's going to be a slow go. We have to slowly prove it to ourselves and we'll get there. But a lot of it just has to go through that, you know, that trauma work. And I know it sucks, but it will get better. Um, okay, was there another question on this? I just want to make sure. Oh, how can I find out if these images and sensations are real memories or flashbacks or just my uh, imagination? Now, the like I said at the beginning, well, also, if when it comes to imagination in this particular question, why would we make it up? What purpose would that serve? I would ask yourself that question. What what good would it do for you to make this up? What would even have ca like caused you to make up such a thing, right? I always ask my patients and my viewers this because a lot of you be like, what if I'm just making it all up? I'm so afraid. Oh my God, oh my God. Why would we make up something? Why would we make up a mental illness? Why, how would that help us? It doesn't. So just being curious about that and thinking like, why would I do it? Mm, I don't know if I would, right? You don't know if you would because you wouldn't. Um, but having an actual trauma specialist work, walk us through it, talk us slowly through, will reveal what happened and what, because the one thing that, about trauma that I do want to say is that because we can fear certain things relating to our trauma, our brain starts to like connect it to more and more, meaning there's more things that we fear, even though we you know haven't been maybe re-traumatized we just had like a panic attack when this was happening so we're like oh my god that was scary too don't do that and then you know this kind of reminds us that scent reminds us of our abuser but this sense kind of similar to it too so like all that is too scary right and we can kind of have that happen where it grows and grows and grows and makes our world smaller and smaller and smaller and so i know that that that, that can feel overwhelming. And some of those things that we thought were tied to our trauma actually aren't. They're like connected to a trigger. And so that might be something that you kind of tease out. But again, figuring this all out will happen in therapy with a trauma specialist as you talk it through. And I hope I didn't get in the weeds too much on that. I realized I was with that like trigger attachment thing. It's like a, it's like a, I don't know, the best way I can describe is like a root system of a tree, right? It just like sp starts spreading. And so 
that stuff might feel like, oh, I made that up. You didn't make it up. It was just attached to another trigger. And you had every right to feel that way and struggle with that. We just have to work it through in therapy to figure out what's what, right? Try to make sense of it so we can prune back that tree that has overgrown in our life and is making things really hard. Also, just to end really quickly, your eating disorder is probably getting worse and worse because of the trauma and it not being processed. And so I really encourage you to talk to your therapist, get some support because your eating disorder is trying to help you cope with your trauma response. And that's why it's getting worse because it's like, oh, this is getting harder. Oh no, I got to come in and, and support even though we know it doesn't support. It doesn't make anything better. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And that question is, hey, Katie, can how can I try not to let my depression take over too much when there are many changes going to happen? I'll be moving soon and should start a program that helps me get better, but I'm letting myself sulk and self-pity, and I don't want to do anything but sleep all day. I fear I won't be able to get through this time, and I don't know how to make sure everything will be all right. I'm scared to live alone as well, but there's no other option. How do you go about these things without losing yourself in depression? Okay, so I'm really glad that you are getting into a program to help you. Is there any way to get some extra support right now? Now, when it comes to depression, there are two main things that I, well, three really, I guess we'll add in a little like easy one we could do today. Three main things that I work on with my patients. And the first is getting them extra support meaning like seeing a therapist, having friends they can talk in a real way about their depression, maybe group therapy, maybe it's family, something. Medication. If we feel like we're drowning in our symptoms, is there a way for you to start medication now before you're in treatment so that you can feel a little bit better and not feel like you're just drowning in the depression? See a psychiatrist, talk to them, find out. Then the third is I wanna make sure you're showering regularly. And I know you're thinking, Katie, that's a weird third thing. Those others are very serious. Well, a shower can sometimes lift our depression just that like 2% and I'll fucking take it. When we feel real bad, taking that shower can be like life-changing. Honestly, even I used to encourage my patients, I was like, if you can take a shower and change your clothes and then move out of your bed to the living room, oh, you've done so much that day. I'm super proud of you. And that's like my main goals. And so some of it can be like rearranging your goals each day so that you feel accomplished instead of letting the depression continue to tell you how stupid, lazy, fat, ugly, whatever it tries to tell you, you are. Then we can kind of like fight back. Yeah, right? Take back ownership of it and get back into life a little bit. So and um, th that's really... That's really my advice because you're going to live alone. You said there's no other option. And so I really, really, really need you to try to get some support like now in any way possible. There is a great uh, free online uh, group therapy resource, I guess is what I call it. And it's called Hope for Recovery. And I'm going to pull it up here. It's hope with the number four recovery. I always forget if it is. Yeah, it's .org. So the, it's www.hope4, number four, dash recovery.org. Do you like how I did the www? It reminds me of like back in, I don't know, 2000 when we would say things like that. Um, but anyway, go to hope4 dash recovery.org and look on their calendar and find some groups because I think just some of that connection will be really, really healing for you. And it's just another way to get support when we need it. And it's free. So if we can't afford to get into treatment or get some support earlier than that, at least you've got that. And they have groups all the time and they're always looking to add more. I know they're just looking for more therapists and more support that way. So yeah, you got this. I know you can. 
I know you can. Um, and our community is a great support too. You know, popping into my uh, Facebook group that's called Katie or even in the comments below videos, people are, are very kind. Our community is very loving and supportive. And yeah, but please get some, get some, somebody, some help, some support. Now, as a comment on this says, this is a great question. I don't know if it would be the same answer, but I think I have the same problem, but with anxiety, not depression. Okay, so we're switching them out. Like whenever new or stressful things happen, I get overwhelmed. I get so overwhelmed that I can't cope as well. And I usually do, and I resort to behaviors that I'm usually better at controlling, like eating disorder behaviors and self-harm. I wish I knew how to stop these things before they happen by responding better to change. We can put in place kind of like what I would call a safety plan for our anxiety or our depression. If we're already in it really deep, it's not going to help. We have to do this when we feel better because we have to think outside of it. And that can be really hard if we're like in the throes of it and having like our worst episode. And so a safety plan, I actually have my suicide safety plan video up on YouTube and you can check that out. But I think it's very simple, meaning for, I, I'd keep it almost the same for anxiety or depression and be like, what are we going to do? I need, um, I have that video 25 coping skills. Check that out because I want you to come up with two process-based coping skills and two distraction-based coping skills. And then I want you to come up with two people you can call. One can be a therapist, sure, but one needs to be like a support person, like a friend or family member, someone you can trust. And we need to have also some other resource like crisis text line or something that's available 24 seven, because we all know that we can't call people in our lives at like two in the morning and the nights can be the hardest. And so putting those kind of plans together so that we're preparing for the worst, hoping for the best will really set you up for success and help you not get so overwhelmed. We're like coping ahead. Often it's so important well, often, like all the time. It's important in life for us to cope ahead and not wait until we feel like total shit before doing anything about it. And so I think for both of these, you know, depression or anxiety, coping ahead and putting together a safety plan will be so beneficial. Um, yeah, and even with the depression, I might even encourage you to do a little bit of opposite action. I know those of you who are depressed are like, absolutely not. But when you want to say no and you want to not... Uh, go to that event or you want to not go to that class or not call that friend back. Can we just like three, two, one, do it? Just like opposite action, just like one thing a week. I feel like it has the potential to change your life. But again, medication, if we're drowning in those symptoms, medication can be your life raft. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, thanks for taking my question. Anytime. Is it still considered sexual abuse if it happens between children who are only a year apart in age? It's a great question. Like when one child is eight and the other is nine, does there have to be a big age difference for it to be considered sexual abuse or does age not matter? Is it less traumatic if they're close in age? Thank you. This is, okay, so I had a video you guys know that came out. Um, obviously, I took this question before the video had come out, but yes. Sexual abuse is sexual abuse. I don't care how old, how old the person is. They could even be younger than you. Child on child sexual abuse is super common, but people don't talk about it for reasons like this. Like, well, I didn't really fight back because I wasn't really sure what was happening because you're a child or the person who abused me was abused themselves. So then I feel bad because they're also a victim. Yes, they also are a victim and I feel bad for them too, but that doesn't make what happened to you less abusive. Does that make sense? Just because something happened to them doesn't mean the abuse didn't happen to you because they were abused, that merely explains what happened. It doesn't, you know, make it okay or uh, like condone it. Does that, I hope that makes sense. 
And so I just want anybody out there who has struggled with child-on-child sexual sexual abuse, please let me know in the comments of that video. It's called 10 Facts About Child-on-Child Sexual Abuse. Let me know if there's other things you want me to talk about. I did my best. I worked with some members of our community who were super, super helpful to make sure that I got it as as like, quote unquote, right as you can. There's no right way to talk about it. But if there are other things you want me to address, I'm happy to. I just wanted to try to cover as much as I could in one video. Um, I hope it wasn't too overwhelming. Okay, so it doesn't matter what age they are. The actual power, this is an interesting thing that I talked about in the video too, is the power actually comes more because they know more about sex, right? They know about sexual acts that we don't know and that that gives them power. And so they can be really coercive or manipulative without realizing it. And we don't really know. We're just going along because we honestly just don't know. Now, the other question says, um, is it less traumatic if they're close in age? I don't find that to be true. I mean, each person is different and the level of trauma is going to depend on what happened to them and their level of resilience. But I don't feel like there's any, nothing is less or more traumatic depending on age. It's just, it's just not how it is. Okay. There's a comment on this and it says, it's kind of, in re, it kind of relates, but kind of doesn't. But it says, what if you fear for your brother's safety in terms of child sexual abuse? My mother was sexually inappropriate to me or rather sexually abusive to me repeatedly um, in the past. And it was kind of bad, but not that bad. Oh, look at that minimization. I hate that abuse does that to us. Makes us feel like it's our fault and we minimize and ugh. The last few weeks, I started to think about the possibility that my mother might be abusing him as well. I could just be projecting my own feelings because my because of my experiences with her. But what if I'm not just imagining things? I moved out last year, but was home for the last month. And I noticed a few situations that could either be me over interpreting stuff or, or and being hypervigilant or real signs that I'm seeing. And he seems to be a little bit different or somehow off in general lately. He's almost seven, so he's a lot younger than I was when it happened. And he's not a girl, but I'm not sure that that rules anything out. It doesn't always. When I finally told someone for the first time, my friend was great and took me seriously. But one thing she said was that she thinks that abusers tend to repeat the same patterns. They do, they can. And maybe that means that my brother is not being abused. Is that true in your experience? I'm not sure that I can trust my instincts anymore. In my experience, and this is just speaking from experience, okay? In my experience, abusers do tend to have a type that they prefer to abuse. Not always. It's not like they only abuse one type of person, but they tend to have a type. And so the fact that it's a boy, not a girl could be a deciding factor. However, it's not always that everybody's different. I've seen both. So my advice is actually, if, if you feel strongly enough about this, which I think you should, it never hurts to report the potential of it. And in the States, I don't know where this person is from, but in the States and in California where I was trained, and I talked about this in the child on child sexual abuse video a little bit, is that when you report it, they do uh, child protective services or CPS does an investigation. And if they don't find anything, then they're okay. So if your brother isn't being abused and it was a specific to a girl thing because he's a boy, it's not being abused, then the investigation will come up nothing and things can move on. Now, you have every right to report because the one thing that we do ask when someone tells us that they've been abused by someone is if they still have access to children. You know, if we were abused as a child, we're going to ask if they have access to children because then that means that other people are, are possibly at risk and we want to assess for that. So I would report. I would report her and let them know that this happened to you and you're just really worried and ha let them do their their thing, you know, let them do their investigation and see what they come up with. Okay. I hope that helps. And I hope that that video about this helped. Again, I'm happy to talk about it more, but 
Yeah. And finally, let's get into question number seven. Question number seven says, hey, Katie, I hope you're content and have settled well into your new place. Thank you. I am. I mean, we're still gathering stuff. I don't know if anybody else is struggling with this, but things that I have ordered like furniture or honestly anything is just taking forever. Like I ordered light fixtures like months ago because the lady who lived in this house before really liked like huge, big, like metal, I don't know, just really oversized light fixtures. And I just want things that like aren't in my way. Um, so I want to get those removed immediately. And I ordered them like a couple weeks into being here. And I still have only received two out, oh no, three out of the five. So there's still some that are coming. And I finally got a side table I ordered three months ago. So everything's a little slow, but we are still, we're getting settled in because things haven't arrived yet, but definitely feeling content. I love Austin. People are super friendly. The food is good. Um, we love it. It's nice to have the space. We have a puppy dog and she has room to roam and run in the back and it's just really fun. So yeah, thanks for asking. Okay. The question says, how do I know if symptoms of one mental illness is their own illness or just part of another? After watching your videos on borderline and Googling the most common symptoms myself, I mustered up the courage to ask my therapist if she thought I might have certain borderline tendencies. I told her that I'm not trying to diagnose myself, but that I was just wondering if I had ever, if, if it had ever crossed her mind, because I do feel reflected in, in many symptoms of borderline. But she said, it's probably all just my eating disorder. Oh, that's weird. Excuse me. I'm not really sure how to process this information because I don't see how all of what I feel and experience relates to my eating disorder. Also, I almost feel let down that she couldn't give me any other diagnosis because I'm pretty sure that what I've been experiencing or that I've been experiencing these symptoms since long before I had an eating disorder. So sorry for the long question. Thanks for all that you do. It's not too long. It's totally okay. And you're very, very welcome. Happy to do it. Now, uh, I, ugh, okay, I have a lot of thoughts. First of all, let her know that a lot of these symptoms you had before you had your eating disorder, that's very important. Now, borderline personality disorder and eating disorders are comorbid very frequently, meaning they occur at the same time. You can have both. I'm not saying that you necessarily meet all the criteria for borderline, and maybe you don't. And she might say, oh, that's just in relation to this, that, or the other. But I I would kind of argue back a little bit because like I've always said, it's, it's with my expertise and your experience that we like work together towards a healthy mind, a healthy body. But in this case, it's like, it's with your expertise and your own experience and your therapist's expertise or your, yeah, your experience and her expertise that you get the correct diagnosis for her to just kind of poo poo your thoughts about it and pretend that it's not not correct or that it's all part of your eating disorder because eating disorders fyi do not have fear of abandonment do not have like the attachment issues that can come along with it there's no self-injurious behavior that's part of any eating disorder or any um splitting behavior like when someone does something that's harmful because we fear so much that we would be harmed or hurt and we couldn't we couldn't survive the pain of losing someone then we like get rid of them first. Like they're all bad then. That's like splitting. They're either all good or all bad, right? So a lot of the behaviors, the impulsivity, sure we can have impulsivity around food, but I would I would bring it up one more time. And what I would say is that, you know, I brought this up a few weeks ago or however long it takes for you to hear this answer from when you asked it. 
And you said that this all relates to my eating disorder, but the more I think about it, the more I just, I don't think that's fully true. And then I would say, because a lot of the symptoms I had way before I had an eating disorder, and from what I know of eating disorders, they don't include, and then I want you to list some of the symptoms that you experience that you do not believe to be part of your eating disorder. And then what I would say to kind of wrap it up with your therapist is something to the effect of, I would just like to talk this out because you know, I, I don't think I quite agree with what you said. So can we, can we like discuss a little more so I can understand where you're coming from? I think that's a healthy way to talk about it. That gives her an opportunity to explain. That also gives her another opportunity to assess because you are the expert on your own experience. And hopefully we can come to some kind of conversation slash understanding where you feel heard and validated and understood. And she feels like the diagnosis and treatment fit. Now, at the end of the day, as long as she's helping you with whatever symptoms you're struggling with, I don't think it necessarily matters, but I know for many of us, a, a diagnosis can be super, super validating and it's it can be feel very necessary. So I would advocate for that, okay? Now there's a comment on this says, Katie, as an add-on, I tried to talk a little about the potential of having a problem with eating to my therapist. At the time I explained that I wanted to lose weight and that I wasn't eating a lot or very frequently. Not sure if this was due to depression or an eating disorder type behavior. The conversation then turned into her asking my height and weight to calculate my BMI. Oh, BMI is such bullshit. I should call it bullshit meter. I don't even know what the I would stand for. Idi idiocracy? I don't know. Her seeing that I was quote unquote overweight due to according to the BMI and from what I could tell, it felt like she was supporting my focus on losing weight, but also wanting me to eat healthily and regularly. I don't know why I trouble with that word. I apologize. I was so confused and still am about this. I no longer see her as she left and I'm not currently in therapy, so I'm not really sure what to do. Thanks for all that you do. Now, if you talked about having a problem with eating and you said it that way, because I don't know exactly what you said, but that you think you have an issue with eating, then that would not have been the way that I would have gone about it. Um, Although I do want you all to know that many therapists do not understand eating disorders and their treatment. They will, they believe, you know, that it's like a control thing and that's the only thing or, you know, hook you up with a dietitian, give you a meal plan and like, that's it. They don't really understand that it's a coping skill or like the thought process or processes really that go behind it. And so she may just be kind of ignorant to eating disorder treatment. And that's okay, right? Like I don't deal with addiction a lot in my practice, so I could be ignorant to a lot of addiction treatment options and things like that. But this just seems very ill-informed, especially calculating BMI. Like, like that tells us fucking anything. Um, okay. So I would encourage you to try to find an eating disorder therapist. If you think that this is what's going on, because you know you best, if you feel like you have an unhealthy relationship with food, overeating, undereating, trying to compensate for what we ate or didn't eat, etc., thinking about food most of the time, so much so that it affects our ability to function, meaning it gets in the way of school, work, friendships, like, oh, I don't want to go out to eat with my my family because, you know, then I can't control what's in the, how they cook it and blah, blah, blah. That is an eating disorder and we should talk to somebody about it. And so I would encourage you to find someone that uh, Hope for Recovery that I mentioned earlier does have groups about eating disorders and that you might find that super helpful. So you could check those out as well. Um, but just getting some support for that would be best. And then I have a ton of videos about eating disorders and I, um, 
I'm trying to think of what else I have out there. Oh, the book that I love is Eating in the Light of the Moon. I encourage you to purchase it and pick it up, get it from your local library. It's a wonderful, wonderful, helpful book. You can get it on Amazon. I think that that could be helpful too, but getting you some support so you can better understand what's going on and get you, you know, maybe some answers about what's going on and why you're struggling with eating the way you're, you are. But I'm glad you're not seeing that therapist anymore because she seems like really inadequate and doesn't doesn't understand. And so in a way, it's kind of the silver lining is that you're probably better off with someone else who truly gets it. Okay, that's all we've got for today. I know I said seven, but we only had six because I miscalculated. Um, thank you so much for listening. Please leave reviews. Please share this podcast. Please share on social media any of the clips that I share. It all really, really helps. And if you have received my new book, Traumatized, please tag me in your photos. I love seeing them. I love knowing that they're all around the world and people are getting them. And yeah. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your week. I hope you do something nice for yourself today. Take just a moment to thank your body for all it does. That helps me sometimes. Like, thank you, body, for, you know, getting me around. Thank you, voice, for letting me speak. Thank you, eyes, for letting me see. Let's thank our bodies a little bit. Be a little kinder to them. We, we tend to trash talk them, I think. I don't know. What do you think? Okay. I love you. Have a wonderful week. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.